How was the word of God heard by the people when it was first spoken? The time, the place, the political landscape, the struggles. And how does the word of God apply to this time, this place, this political landscape, our struggles? This is Michael Leasley in Context. Understand God's word and apply it to your life. In Context. Well, welcome to In Context. This is Michael Leasley, your host, and I'm sitting across from your co-host. Hannah Seymour. Good to see you. Good to see you, too. Good to be seen. So we're in (laughs) studio today, and today we're going to turn the tables. So what I want to do is uh, interview my daughter about her first book, which just came out April 3rd. Had an amazing book signing at uh, Barnes and Nobles here in Cool Springs. It was fun. It was a lot of fun. A lot of people came. Yeah, people who love you and me and would show up because they love us. Well, that, that's okay. I'm, not, I'm <laughs> upset about that. That's what friends are for, right? So right. let's go back in time a little bit. So we're talking about in context, and the thesis of this whole program and podcast is how do we live the Christian life in the context in which we are called, in which we serve, in which we work, alongside of one of my shticks has been when I'm teaching the scripture, I'm always saying what the context says. What does this mean in context? So that's our, our wordplay, if you will, our double entendre. But what you have done over, it's been what, 12 years? Yeah, 12 years. You've been working with younger girls, started out junior high, high school girls, and you started seeing trends with these uh, young girls, some becoming young women, maturing but they've got a lot of challenges. Mm-hmm. And so you started a blog? I did. <laughs> so I had been working in higher education for about three years. And I was noticing several of my students having conversations with me where they were really grappling with the Christian faith they had been raised in. And at the time, I thought, oh, this is this is normal, which it is normal. Um, but thinking, you know, they're having doubts. They're going to go through season of doubts, but they're going to come out stronger in the end. And... Unfortunately, they didn't. I watched student after student walk away from the Christian faith, walk away from how they had been raised to believe. And what it really came down to is they were coming to college with their parents' faith, but they had no idea why they believe what they believe. They couldn't articulate it. Um, There just really wasn't a foundation for them. So as I was having these conversations, I thought, man, I wish I could help kind of prevent this. So I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing at the college level, but I want to start volunteering with high school girls. And if I could just graduate 12 girls, that was like my vision. If I could graduate 12 (laughs) girls and send them off to college, and if they knew why they believed what they believed, if they could articulate it, they don't have to know everything perfectly, but if they could understand the core of the gospel, why it's important, how it transforms our lives, um, and know that I will have done something that's significant. And maybe I can prevent students falling away from the faith once they're at college. So I started doing that. Loved my time in high school ministry. Um, and as I was graduating my girls, they were sending me emails asking me really typical college questions. Um, Hannah, my roommate and I are suddenly not getting along. We haven't spoken in a week. <laughs> or uh, I, you know I came to college as a nursing major. 
I thought this is my passion, what I'm supposed to do with my life, and I am failing my biology class. <laughs> or, Oops. Yeah. Um, and, of course, these are conversations I had been having in my office for years at the college level, but it was the first time I was responding to these questions in writing. And so after doing this for about a semester, these girls came home from college, and I said, hey, could I take your question, when you guys email me or text me, how would you feel if I made it a little bit more vague and anonymous, posted it on a blog, and then put my answer? But that way, y'all can be learning from each other because you're probably mm-hmm. having similar questions, similar issues, sure. and it'll help unite you guys, see that you're not alone. It'll also maximize my time. Um how do you feel about this? And they all were so encouraging and said, yes, let's do this. So that blog was, it was really sweet. I mean, it just started, I really started it for these 12 girls. And the next thing I knew, hundreds, thousands of girls were reading it every single week. I was getting email questions from girls all across the country at colleges I'd never even heard of. (laughs) Um, And so I did that for over two years. Every single Tuesday, I answered a what I called a college girl problem. And it ranged, again, everything from relational, roommate problems, boyfriend issues, major, career, parent conflict, um, you know, how do I find a church? Everything you could imagine that a college girl would find challenging or hard during her four years. Well, Hannah, you know I like thinking bell curves. On the one extreme, we have parents that are too involved, helicoptering in and out. On the other extreme, parents that are absent, basically, from their uh, daughter's life in this case. Mm -hmm. You're the middle ground. A person like you with a resource like this is a person who can answer a question that, frankly, even the best parent can't always respond to because they're too emotionally involved with their daughter. Right. It's so funny. I remember mom saying years ago, I was probably in high school, and I don't even think she was talking to me. I think I overheard this conversation where she was telling someone, I will take all of the young women older than my daughter, I will take all of them into her life because 99.9% of the time they are saying to Hannah exactly what I'm saying to her, but (laughs) Hannah hears it differently. You know, it's packaged, it's packaged a little bit differently. It's in a 25 year old body instead of a however old mom was at the time when I was a high school student. Yeah. (laughs) But, um, that stuck with me because I thought truly when, when I started working with college students and then with high school students, I really saw myself as an extension of the parent network and obviously not saying I'm parenting your teen when I'm their small group leader, but there is a sense of, I get to lock arms with parents and regurgitate the exact same advice that they are trying to communicate to their daughter. But for whatever reason, you know, it is coming out of a more attractive vehicle at that time for their child. And so... Well, they're not your parent. And uh, when I was in student ministries for a very brief time during graduate school, uh, I'll never forget the, the guy I followed was a legend. And all the students talked about this guy. They named him all the time. They named him all the time. For three years, I heard this guy's name. Fast forward, uh, many years later, I come back to this church. There is a guy who replaced me. And he goes, all I've heard is Michael Easley this and Michael Easley this. So funny. <laughs> so there's that wind of opportunity. You know, I often call it imperceptible influence. Mm-hmm. We don't understand how much influence you can have just being maybe a decade older than the person you're ministering to because you're not that old. Mm-hmm. You still understand. And let's just jump right to one of the, the biggest challenges, social media. 
Yeah. It didn't exist in the platforms that it is used today. Right. I remember one weekend we were traveling uh, together for some reason, and you were on Snapchat, which was new at the time. Mm-hmm. And I, I said, what are you doing? <laughs> and you were talking to some girl, and I, I later ran into her father, and he said, your daughter is discipling my daughter via Snapchat. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, what a brave new... Frightening world we are now hey, in. You got to go where they are. But even to go back to your point about being, you know, not as old, I don't even think age has something to do with it sometimes. I mean, you and True. I have a dear friend in Northern Virginia. She is your age, mom's age, who really took me under her wing when I moved back to D.C. after grad school. And she mentored me and loved me and poured into me like crazy. And I mean, of course, by that time, I'm at the age where I'm going to take the same advice from you and mom as I would her. But Still, I mean, she's but not, not any, every but she, not every child would. That's true, that's and, right. and true, and she's not any younger than y'all. But it's just a, it's another wise, godly person pouring into you. Mm-hmm. Hannah, you commented earlier essentially about discipleship. You yeah. said if you could get twelve girls who didn't know everything, uh, number one, I think most every person who's a believer who's growing fears. I don't know what to teach somebody. I don't know enough. I don't yeah. know how. And your word was great to say. We can't give them everything, right? But to give them some basics, some fundamentals. I'm often reminded of First Timothy. It's one of my favorite go-to passages, and it, it really addresses a younger man who's dealing with some older people that we read between the lines. He's probably getting some trouble and pressure from these older men. Mm. And Paul, the elder statesman apostle tells the younger Timothy, who, by the way, is probably in his 40s, but, you know, cultural context is everything. And he talks about, uh, in chapter 4, verse 12, let no one look down on your youthfulness, but in your speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. And he goes on in this chapter to explain, if you are an example, people will pay attention to that. Hmm. And I've used those five words in messages over and over again. Speech, conduct, love, faith of your speech, what you say, conduct, what you do, love, what you show, faith, what you believe, purity, what you intend. In your speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself a tupos, an example. Hmm. And the word tupos in Greek uh, remember old typewriters that you actually clicked and pounded on. Yeah. When when the type hit the platen, that's the round part. Okay. There was a, a a piece of ribbon or a carbon material, so you put the paper in the platen. You put a bale down that holds it in place, and there's a ribbon or a cartridge. And as you hit those keys, the type struck the paper. The platen absorbed the shock and it leaves behind an imprint. Uh-huh. The actual strike, not the typeface, but the strike uh-huh. is called the tupos. Huh. So it's the impression left behind. So Paul is telling Timothy, prove yourself a type, a pattern. You leave a mark of your speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Show yourself a person leaves a mark. So what you're doing in this book is you're trying to leave a mark on these young ladies, on their heart and mind. And as you so often say, it's not just the decisions in college, but the decisions they make now affect the rest of their lives. Certainly the next decade in their 20s, probably 30s, and truly probably the trajectory of their life. 
Well, I want to go back and think with you a little bit about social media. A friend of mine who also works with college students told me one of the trending hashtags is TLDR. Mm-hmm. Did you know this before? Well, I, I mean, I didn't know it was a trending hashtag, but sure. You know what I mean? I, see, I'd never yeah. heard it. Too long, didn't read. Yeah. <laughs> Which shocks me, but disappoints me. shouldn't shock me. So the reason I bring up this too long, didn't read is when you talk to, when you teach, when you, let's just say, minister to these young girls. Yeah. It's got to be to the point. Right. <laughs> They're not going to read a big, fat book. Yeah. Well, I. it is funny because my book actually is surprisingly fat. It, when it, when I got the first copy, printed copy, I thought, dang, this thing is dense. Um, but it is very short to the point. And part of that is, yes, what you're saying, how they consume. It's also how I write. So I don't have a lot of fluff. I don't have a lot of tact. I got that from your wife, my mother. Wow, uh, I you can blame it on me for a second. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so the book is really a read the first three chapters, and the first three chapters are short. I mean, each chapter is maybe five pages. And then the rest is 52 of the top college girl concerns, and you can flip to your problem. So if you're having roommate issues, you can flip to that chapter that starts with I want to kill my roommate, but I don't know where to bury her body. Uh, And there's a number of different relational roommate issues that I address. So, And and those are trends you've heard over and over again. Oh, for the last 12 years. Yeah. Or, you know, if you're having career and major direction issues, there's a whole section on that. If you're having boyfriend issues, there's a section on that. Or where is my boyfriend slash future husband? Anyway, it's all there, and they can find it really easy in the index of where to go. When you... First went off to college, your mother and your younger sister and I drove you from Northern Virginia to Belmont University. We crammed everything that you owned and then some into the van. (laughs) So much stuff. So much stuff. College (laughs) girls brought you to campus, made three trips to Walmart. Yeah. Uh, It was was getting really testy. I remember uh, finally huddling your mom and Jesse and you and me together and saying, okay, final prayer, we're out of here. Your mom was ticked at me. Jesse was mad at the whole situation because she's losing her big sister. Uh, we say our goodbyes. Walk you, watch you walk away with the weight of the world on your shoulders. I can still see it. Get in the car. You had a roommate. Yeah. I write about her in my book. A very different person <laughs> than you. Polar op. You couldn't find two more different people and put them in the same room. So you lived this. Yes. You lived this. Yes. And so out of there, it's like, uh, well, if you knew my first roommate, my first semester, we'd have a lot to talk about right. and nothing new. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I, in fact, I say in my book, trust me, if I can live with her for a full year, you can live with anybody for a year. I do remember coming back to retrieve you after your first year, and uh, there was this pile of stuff in the room. She had no bed frame. Her uh-huh. mattress was on the floor, yeah, sure. and there was all this stuff piled there. And you said, "Oh, Dad, there's probably dishes and dirty food all the way around her." And we were un- we were packing you up, and I did not know as we finished packing the truck, she was laying in that bed <laughs> the entire time asleep. Yep. Uh, whoa. Yep, sounds about right. <laughs> so no uh, one can beat that roommate, right? I don't think so. It'd be pretty tough. So Hannah, let's think of a, a mom, a grandma. Uh, aunt, someone who works with high school girls, maybe junior high girls, sure. and they know these girls are headed to college. Maybe there's one or two already a semester or two down the line in, in college. Help them understand 
uh, why to buy this book and why it's so critical they get this resource in their hands. Yeah. So I wrote this book because I wanted there to be something that was practical, quick, easy reads, just like you were saying, but also grounded in biblical principles, um, but not in a overly Christianized, you know, shove it down your throat. So the name of Jesus isn't on every page, but the introduction even says, you know, if you're not a Christian, you can still read this book. My hope is that I convince you that just Christian principles alone are just actually a wise way to live. Um, The way that Jesus has given us an example and called us to live, even if you don't buy into the Bible, it's it's a pretty good way to live. So I try to write it from a very soft and non-judgmental point of view, um, but every challenge, every concern that I address, almost always I bring it back to, you can trust God in this. If this is a difficulty you're facing, some kind of hardship, some kind of conflict, trust that God's going to use it in your life for your good, trust that he's going to grow you, um, and all of this is part of your maturing process into adulthood. Are you going to be the woman that God has designed you to be no matter your circumstances? I stole that from my preacher daddy. I've heard you say that my whole life and I use it all the time. And that that really is what this book is. Um, And I think just to encourage anyone working, especially with junior high and high school, if you are in that student ministry or, or, you know, somehow you are mentoring young women, hang on to them with all your might once they transition into college. Because what happens is they're used to you being in their lives and all their other Christian friends and church community and whatever. And a lot of times they go off to college and they lose touch with all of those people and they don't have that support group anymore. But really, they need you and your voice in their life more than ever their freshman year of college. But we just think, oh, I graduated them. They're off to college. You know, I'll see them when they come home from breaks. But check in with them. Call, send them a text once a week. How are you doing? How can I pray for you? What's challenging this week? You will be shocked. They will answer. <laughs> they will answer <laughs> with all their challenges. They will answer with prayer requests. They need you. And if you can stay a trusted voice in their life over the four years of college, that is the biggest win. One of the things your mom and I have seen over almost four decades now, hard to believe, the people that you influence through discipleship, I know we have all these catchy phrases, spiritual formation and all this kind of stuff, which is fine. Uh, I'm a purist. Uh, we're making disciples. We're, we're trying to encourage people to become followers and students of Christ and to transfer that to other people, to encourage them to be followers and students of Christ yeah. all of their lives. So when you think about a college girl, I mean, let's go back to 12 years ago and today. What differences do you see between that girl 12 years ago and what she's facing today? Yeah, I think it's all really similar except the technology social media piece, which of course changes everything. But I mean, you think about when I, my first job out of college working at the University of South Carolina as a hall director, we had text message and I think most of my students had a cell phone, but we it wasn't unlimited. So you, I mean, even the way that we communicated, those students were still calling me and coming to my office, which this is only 12 years ago. But so just that difference of communication, um, I am not a technology social media expert by any means, but I mean, we all know teens and young adults communicate differently today if they have been used to texting and Snapchatting 
their whole life. They are not as good face-to-face. So that means roommate conflicts, way more difficult. It means um, them connecting with their peers and professors and other folks at the university level, way more difficult. Um, It's more likely, I think, for a college student today to be isolated than they were 12 years ago. But again, because it can just be you and your phone all day long in your dorm room. You can binge Netflix forever. Again, when I first started not even when I was in college, when I first started working with college students, most people had a TV in their room, but there wasn't any kind of online streaming yet. So the isolation just didn't, I don't think it happened as much. But at the end of the day, it's still the same, it's still the same stock issues. We're talking about 18 year olds who are leaving their home and they are venturing off to become adults. And they see these next four years as declaring their independence, figuring out who they are, what they want to do with their life, and trying to make something of it all. And so every setback, every mistake, failure, hardship is overwhelming to them because it matters. I mean, they see these four years as so crucial. And and you may look at some students and go, they don't think these four years are crucial, but they do deep down because they know this is the bridge from childhood to adulthood, and I've got to prove myself. And if I don't, I failed. When you think of the popular cheerleader, yeah, the popular lead in musical theater, mm-hmm. the straight A young lady, um, or the wallflower, insecure, mm-hmm. um, uh, in, you know, a person who, who maybe has not developed emotionally and physically, you take that into a college campus, all bets are off. That's right. Because you might have been the cheerleader. Or you know this this successful person academically, or you might have been the wallflower, or a person that's not as emotionally ahead of the pack, and now you're in a new environment. Yep. And I remember, I think I've told you this story when I went my first semester of college. Clyde Iglinski, <laughs> never forget that name, <laughs> was the uh, student development guy that came out and talked to us as incoming freshmen. So Dr. Iglinski had us count off to four: one, two, three, four. He said, "I want you to literally look and count four people." Yeah. And then he said, one of you will not be here by the end of the first semester. <laughs> and it was just a chilling moment to mm-hmm. go, okay, this is a new world. Uh-huh. You're, you're going to make your own way. That hasn't changed. Right. But the context of all the accoutrements, the technology, um, do you see that these young people coming to college are delayed in their development? They're not quite ready for primetime college? <sighs> It depends. Some students are, some students aren't. And that's probably how it's always been. I mean, obviously, the gap year is more and more popular where students take off a year, sometimes two between college. And and I will tell you, the students that do that, um, I worked with several students at Belmont that were 20, 20, 22, 25 coming in as freshmen. They are very different students than the 18-year-old. But there are plenty of 18-year-olds that are ready to hit the ground running. Presuming we've got an intact parenting system, whether it's a single parent or a mom and dad who's sending their daughter off to college, uh, presuming that they've done a good job uh, getting things in order for their daughter to go off to school, what's different in your experience from what mom and dad are uh, are sending, uh, let's just call her Julie, off to college and what Julie's going to experience when she lands in college? So what's the difference of the parent's expectation versus the student's reality? Well, as a parent who's, who's sent a couple of kids to college, I want you to go. I've been told all of you, your primary job 
is your grades, your coursework, showing up, doing the homework. Right. As one of our friends says, showing up to class is 90% of the work. Right. (laughs) (laughs) The tests are another issue. Your extracurricular activities, Mm -hmm. maybe a part-time job. Yep. For some pocket money. Yep. That's a parent's view, an adult's view of sending them off to college. In reality... Yeah, those are probably in a different order. <laughs> um, going to class, it's funny how many students cut class. And every once in a while, I would come across a student that had, you know, broken down the math of like, if I skip this one hour class on Monday, I'm spending $825. To, I mean, when they really see the value of what an hour of class time costs, it, it ain't cheap. You know, you're throwing money out the window by cutting class. Um, so occasionally there are students that really believe in the importance of going to class and doing the work. Most are showing up more for the experience. And it's funny because in my book, I, I answer the question, what is the number one thing as a first semester freshman? What's the most important thing for me to focus on? And I always say, parents hate my answer because they want me to say, go to class. And that is important. I do want you to go to class. But... I argue that the number one most important thing is for a college freshman to start figuring out who they want to be their friends because I think that the friends you choose in college impact the rest of your college experience and truly the rest of your 20s. And I talk about when I was at Belmont, I would watch groups of friends graduate. My job was to help prepare students go into the music business, music business entertainment industry and Groups of students would graduate, and in all their friend group, all of them would get jobs. And it's not an easy thing to get a job in the music industry. There are few. And at Belmont, we graduate like 300, 400, 500 students a year who want to do something in that industry. So there'd be groups that all got jobs, and then there would be groups of friends that none of them got jobs. And I'd run into them a couple years later and they're waiting tables somewhere and griping to me. Oh, I don't know anyone that got a job from my, you know, Belmont. And I would think to myself, well, that's interesting because I know a lot of students that were in your class who have jobs. But I think it really goes back to you are choosing people to surround yourself with. If they are go-getters, if they're going to intern at tons of places, they're networking, they're going out to shows, they are going to challenge and encourage you to excel in your own career ambitions. If you're around friends that maybe they intern once, maybe they go, you know, but they're just not hustlers. They're not working really hard towards this really high, hard to achieve goal. Um, you're probably not going to hit it either because they're not spurring you on. And so, I mean, again, I guess you could argue if you're choosing the right friends your freshman year of college and if they're all going to class, you're going to go to right, class. Right. If you're choosing friends that – Skip when the weather's nice. And hey, I did it too. It's You the, did? The first, you did? The first day where it's actually spring out of winter, like the quad at any college, it doesn't matter where you are, the quad is completely <laughs> packed with students, sunbathing, frisbee tossing, you know, all of that. No one's a class. Professors know. They show up, there's going to be five people in their chairs. Usually they give pop quizzes if they're evil. Um, but, you know. Yes, your student is not going to probably prioritize exactly what you want them to, but they do know, I mean, they are at college for a reason, and that is to learn something, hopefully, graduate with a degree, and all of that four-year experience should prepare them for the workforce, for, for adulthood. One of my professors in grad school said, don't let your studies get in the way of your education. Yeah, and what you're talking about are the relationship dynamics. Um, a, a mutual friend of ours 
said it simply. He said, uh, you always want to choose a pack of people that are better and smarter than you to run with. Yeah, that's good. Because it's the lowest common denominator you're going you're gonna to learn and gain. So when I was in uh, graduate school studying Greek and Hebrew and banging my head against the wall trying to learn Hebrew for four years, um, I had two or three guys we met with uh, twice a week at seven in the morning to review and do vocab and drill each other on syntax and quizzes. We had a little quiz every day, a little quiz every day, <laughs> and it was it was the hardest thing in the world. So I got the smartest guys I knew, yeah, and we would study together. And we often joked about we got through seminary on Charlie Boyd's coattails because Charlie made straight A's all the way through the master's program. This is a rigorous program. And it's like, hey, Charlie, you know, just give me your notes. I'd make a, I'd make a B just having Charlie's notes. Amazing. But the point was you're going with other people that are highly motivated that want to do the right thing as opposed to the kids that are, you know, recreational drugs, that are sleeping in, that are partying all night, yeah. that are experimenting with sexuality, all the things that are thrown at these kids. Yep. Unlike when uh, you're as old as me, uh, those things were a little more difficult to come by. Mm. And today, it's it's so available. I don't think parents understand how easily accessible sexual experimentation and uh, drugs, alcohol, all this stuff is are to every incoming kid. Oh, it's huge. I think parents would be shocked to know. And it's not just marijuana on college campuses. There is hard drugs, and it is everywhere. And sexual assault rates are high, and they're not even reported that often. And so, I mean, that's the other thing. And again, address it in my book, trying to help, one, educate girls. Um, one in four women in, co- in college, during college, are sexually assaulted. And a lot of that is because of the drinking and drug and partying scene. Um, it's you are at risk when you are going to a party and you're binge drinking and the guy's binge drinking and things are going to happen. You're not in control anymore. And it happened. The, the statistics are staggering. And in some of my former jobs, it has been my role to respond when a student reports sexual assault, whether it happened last weekend, last night, or two years ago. And the stories I've heard and the, oh, I mean, I could cry right now thinking about it. It happens a lot. But it's pretty much paint by numbers. You're at risk behavior. You're, you're hanging out with other friends, a kid who maybe, maybe they've experimented with drugs and alcohol a little bit, but now they're in an environment where a whole bunch of people are all yeah. getting stoned, all getting, yeah. all getting drunk. Yeah. Who knows what you're drinking? Right. Who knows what you're smoking? Who knows what you're, you're experimenting right. with? Next thing you know. And it could even, sometimes it's not like there's literally nothing that girl has done. She could have been drinking a club soda all night, but if she was slipped a roofie, it's over. And so again, I mean, it's the environment and what, what, so you can never go out with friends. I mean, no, but it's, it's being aware, um, talking about it with your girlfriends, talking about with your guy friends that you trust and being on your guard and constantly thinking about protecting yourself and your friends. You know, Hannah, when I was at, at Moody, one of the interesting systems they had in place, and it was one of those things that it, it just worked as a legacy. I don't think you could shrink wrap it and put it in a college, but for some overly ambitious uh, college students, it might be interesting. They had a thing called Brosis, a little bit of a cheesy name. <laughs> but the idea was uh, three girls and three guys. Yep. And they actually uh, they, they paired uh, the women's dorm floors with men's dorm floors and they would eat together so colby six would eat with smith four Mm -hmm. or whatever and they would eat their breakfast together 
and it was to cultivate non-sexual healthy relationships between other people. And what was great about it was they had to walk about a mile and a half to one of a couple of grocery store options. And the rule was, hey, look, be smart. Yep. Uh, go with a bro-sis group. Go yeah. with a pack. Yeah. Three girls, three guys, yeah. in a pinch, two and two. But much more importantly, they're learning to hang out with the opposite sex mm-hmm. in a safe and healthy environment. Mm-hmm. And you got somebody watching your back right. as opposed to, I don't know these people. I'm in, invited to this frat house, to this house off yep. campus that's a block away. I don't know what I'm getting into. Yep. Um, and then you're going you're gonna to make the mistakes. You're going to find out, I can't trust that person. Yep. I can't trust that girl, that guy. And then you have to self-select and say, okay, I'm going to choose a different you know, group to run with. Right. And I think that is the challenge with, I mean, p- people always joke that work on college campuses or even upperclassmen, you know the freshmen by the size of their group walking around. You know, like freshmen travel in packs on any college campus because they don't have their best friends yet. And so, you know, it's one guy going down the dorm room hall saying, hey, I'm going to get dinner. Who wants to come? And like 10 other people join them and they all walk <laughs> to the dining hall together. Um, but so they are becoming friends. I mean, you're talking about they don't know who to trust. They're hanging out with people and they're being friends who they really don't know. You know, they met three days ago and they're spending every waking hour with them. And again, one of the things I talk about in my book is the difference of convenient friendships and meaningful friendships. And Every college freshman makes convenient friendships. It's it's survival. <laughs> you go to right. orientation, you show up first day of classes, you are going to glom onto the most convenient people, who you live with, who you sit next to. And that is good and fine for the moment, but not getting stuck there, remembering this is survival. Now, again, going back to you, I need to take a minute, look around and observe, who do I want to be like? Just what you were saying. Who is smarter, harder working? You know, who who is someone that I want to emulate? And not in a copycat way, but... Encourage um, one another. Yeah, and, and really develop those friendships. So help that young girl who's got the convenient friendships yeah. to be more intentional about the right friendships. Right. So, I mean, I address it in several different ways and in some lists in my book. Um, but essentially it goes to, number one, know you. You've got to figure out what do you believe? What are the values that you cherish before you can identify folks that you want to be hanging around with? Um, and then start start looking, start observing who who are good people. I talk about choose friends that are trustworthy, that are loyal, that are encouragers. Um, they're not complainers. They're not tearing other people down. Choose people that are fans of you and you're fans of them. Um, you know, But really think about what characteristics and values do you want your friends to hold? And then go find those people. And it takes time. I mean, that's the other thing. The number of times I've counseled students at the end of freshman year, at the end of sophomore year, just still really struggling to find their people. It's easy to forget that your best friends from high school most people have known them since they were five years old, you know? And if not, they probably met them their freshman year. But those are friendships that they have cultivated over years and years and years of life. And with the extension of family members, like my high school best friends all knew you and mom. They knew my siblings. That You've got so much more context when you're growing up in your community. Then all of a sudden you go off to college and you expect to have your best friend by the end of your you know, first semester, freshman year. Well, it's been three months. When else in life do we expect to have found our best community in three months' time? But again, I think it just goes back to there's so much pressure on that 18-year-old to do it right, to find their people, to feel like they're being successful. 
Um, they're making the most out of their college experience. And it's hard and it takes time and you got to learn to pursue people. And again, I which, talk about that. Which is hard when you're in isolation. Yeah. Because when you got that phone, I mean, I, I'm shocked when I walk into most meetings. But if I'm in a younger setting, they've all got their head down looking at their phone. Yep. And not that that's the end of the world, but the lack of social connection, the lack of, you know, I, I think I made you read a book when you were in junior high, high school by Bob Beale, or a chapter rather. And he talked about his daughter going off to school and she was nervous about her clothes and, you know, her backpack, her hair, everything. And uh, he made the, the comment to her. He said, um, if, if you walked into class, what would you like for some girl to say? Mm. And it was to the effect of, oh, I really like your dress. Uh-huh. I really like your shoes. I like your new outfit. I yeah. like your whatever. Yeah. And, and she went through a list of questions like that. And then he said, why don't you pick a girl and ask those questions? Mm. And it was a game changer for yep. his daughter to go, oh, to find a friend. Be the friend, be the friend. you want to be. Yep. <laughs> right. yep. And it selects pretty quickly. Yeah. Because those people who are full of themselves, you're going to sift it out pretty quickly. Yep. Those people that are really insecure might prosper and go, wow, here's a nice person. Yep. You know, So it does take time. The other thing is when they are isolated and away from that network of family and friends, there's no place like home. Yeah. And yeah. they really become homesick in a major league way. Yep. And that's hard. Because the only fix to homesickness is digging your heels into that college campus. It's not going on. And making it work. It's not. And I I mean, my girls that I've graduated from high school to college know I've begged them. And it is hard when you go in state and you're two hours away. I've got girls at UT, Samford. It's easy to come home to Nashville. Um, They know. I begged them, hey, give yourself six weekends. Don't come home for six weekends. And that's hard, especially when some of those college campuses are suitcase campuses where everyone gets in their car yep. and goes home on the weekends. Um, but I mean, so I had some call me going, everyone's leaving, you know, <laughs> I want to leave too. And I would say, not everyone has left, go find those people and they will become your best friends because they're not leaving probably because it's not an easy drive home. But, um, when students are going home every other weekend, yes, it's nice to do free laundry and have mom cook you a meal. Yep. Mom's probably doing your laundry, actually, if you're going home. Um, while that's nice, that is only preventing your ability to create a new life. You're going to be in this new environment for probably four years, and you got to start investing in people. you got to start exploring that town. You've got to start making a new life for yourself in that new location and that's the only way to beat out homesickness, which is not what they want to hear. The College Girls Survival Guide. 52 honest, faith-filled answers to your biggest concerns. Hannah, give us the 30,000 take on why a college girl needs this resource. It's the resource that I wanted to give every high school girl that I've graduated before. So it's got practical advice. Anything they're facing is going to be in that book. It's honest faith-filled answers like the byline is. No, it's it's real, but it's grounded in biblical principles. It's funny. It's lighthearted. It's an easy read. Um, but really, at the end of the day, I'm trying to help these women understand that change always brings challenges, that everything they're experiencing is normal, and that the way they live during those four years of college will either propel them into their 20s and the rest of their adulthood, or they'll be recovering from it. Years ago, I wrote a 30-page philosophy of ministry paper, 
and no one ever read it except the greater. Uh, after a couple of years serving a local church, I wrote a five-bullet <laughs> philosophy of ministry. I love it. And uh, the first one is everybody needs a friend. The second, everybody is unencouraged. Third, everybody is insecure. And I think what you've done in this book is said, look, this is not abnormal. That's right. These are things you're going to face. You need someone to encourage you, someone who will listen to you, someone you can bounce these ideas off of. And that's what you've done in this resource, the College Girls Survival Guide. Get some copies for your friends. Get some copies for gifts. It'll be a great resource. And it just may change a young woman's life. This is Michael Easley in Context, along with Hannah Seymour. See you next time. Context is engineered by Chad Cates, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho, Chad Cates, and Blair Masters. Music